Hi, I'm Sydney. I'm Jake. And you're listening to Two for the Matinee. Today we'll be talking about The Black Dahlia and Shine. So spoiler warning because, well, one of these movies is really going to get spoiled, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You'll know what we're talking about when we get there. All right, all right. Oh, uh, before we get into those two, did you hear about the Fast Times at Ridgemont High table read? No, I heard about the Princess Bride table read. Uh, tell me about the Princess Bride table read. Well, I missed it, but I heard that was pretty fantastic, and I saw nothing but praise from people who had seen it. Who was in it? Everybody. Mandy Patinkin. Oh, they got they brought back the original. Yeah, cast. yeah, yeah, yeah. Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright was in it. All of them. Well, that doesn't sound that interesting. Wait, just... what? Who was in the other one for Fast Times? <laughs> okay, so Shia LaBeouf, method actor, played Spicoli and was high out of his mind. Okay. I think the rest of the cast. I don't know if they were amused or irritated with him. Uh, it also had Julia Roberts, Jennifer Aniston, John Legend, Jimmy Kimmel, Dane Cook, Sean Penn, Nada Spicoli, Brad Pitt, Matthew McConaughey, Morgan Freeman, reading screen directions, and Ray Liotta, who now looks like some weird guy wearing a mask of Ray Liotta. And he he looked like he didn't want to be there. So I don't even know what he was doing there. He just was not having a good time at all. Before we watched that, went back and watched Fast Times at Richmond High. Still great. And then I went to watch this. And I don't know why. I thought Shia LaBeouf had it together again. He was just, he was ridiculous. I don't know why anyone would work with him. All right, I'm going to have to watch this now. Yeah, it's an hour long, and it's like it's kind of a fun premise, but I couldn't watch the whole thing. It was too boring. But I skipped around. So Shia LaBeouf plays Spicoli, and Ray Liotta plays Mr. Hand, the teacher. Mm-hmm. So, so like those scenes were especially uh, were they cringy? Cringy. Uh, I don't like cringy. Um, Matthew McConaughey. He played uh, Damone. If you remember, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the character names. So that was that was an interesting choice for him. Dane Cook cast himself because he was like the host for this. It was a charity thing. And he cast himself as uh, Ratner, who I guess is sort of the main character. Or he probably got the most screen time. But yeah, it was weird. But I guess in these weird times, people do weird things. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing you could do, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, it's it's kind of interesting seeing people's homes because most of them were at home in the background. And um, I th- we'll probably be seeing more weird stuff like this, which I think is good. Let's try to do some creative stuff. I'm fine with that. So I watched that video you sent me about problematic films. Um, and I, I mean, I certainly agree with some points. Uh, and then... Some stuff, I feel like it misses the mark a little bit. I didn't rewatch it, so you're going to have to refresh me. Like, what what, what did you disagree with? I think it's the author. I don't know. What do you call the person who made it and narrated it? The creator? Yeah, um, the creator. I think it, there's separate issues. One issue is, like, how Hollywood works and sort of the industry. 
And I think individual movies should be in some ways treated differently, but I, I felt like it kind of grouped them together into sort of the big problem. Oh, so she was sort of putting, pushing together the movies themselves and the machinery behind how the movies get made. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about a video by YouTube creator, Be Kind Rewind about Green Book and the help and sort of white savior movies, I guess you would call yeah. them. And she focuses a lot on the help. Her main criticism of Green Book was this like quote about how the family was upset by the fact that they weren't consulted. But having listened to a podcast with the writer of the movie and the, the fact that he said that Dr. Shirley was explicitly asking him not to consult the family. And right, the fact right. that this is dad's life, so it's more about his dad, I guess, than Dr. Shirley. I mean, I feel like because she threw all like everything into the same bucket, like she didn't actually look into each individual film as much to see like what went into the making of it. Okay, so what her point becomes moot now because we know what Dr. Shirley's conditions were about that movie being made or right. any anything with regards to his story right. on this trip being made. Um, but I, I did like she she would name like a famous movie that came out in the 70s. And then there was like a movie that I'd never heard of that was predominantly black cast about like other like sort of racial issues, but from like the black point of view, that sounded really interesting. Like one she brought up was, I think it was the same year that Kill Mockingbird came out. There was a year, uh, there's a movie called The Invader where it's about a town where William Shatner is like this very racist, I don't know if he's like, I think he might be a preacher or something. He like moves into town and starts like creating this very racist fervor and how the black community within that town has to deal with what's happening. That sounded, that looked really good. Mm -hmm. um, then there was another one, I think it was from the seventies and it had this like almost like a sci-fi look, but it was about how the conflict within sort of various black activist groups after the assassination of Martin Luther King and how sort of the t it was about how the time for peaceful protest was over and we have to get like militant but there was like like there was still certain like black groups trying to appeal to this kind of black panther as group saying like no no we still got to do the peaceful thing and there's this she, the clip she played had this great line that how like the nonviolent protest died on whatever date 1968 when he was assassinated april 4. yeah april 4th um so i think i think that is a valid point and she talks about like how Hollywood's run by white people and they're trying to make money. So they like sort of, they do, they make movies that they think will make the most money, which again, I mean, it is a business. So, you know, black population is like 14% of the country. But I think that sells right. short the ability of white people to watch other people's stories. That's a good point. You know, I mean, right. the rest of us watch white people's stories all the time. So why, I don't see why, I mean, sure, there'll be certain white people who are like, I'm not going to see that. But on the whole, if you present interesting stories, people are going to watch them. But uh, what you were saying, I think you make a great point. And like we've seen with movies like um, Get Out, that it, it works, right? Yeah, I you mean, everybody saw Black Panther. Not everybody might have like, had, they might have felt different ways about it. It might not have been as, um, the representation obviously might not have been important to some people, but Tons of people, millions of people saw that movie. So there's obviously a space for other stories. Parasite is another example of stories. Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians, yeah. So I think in their minds, they have an idea of what they think the public wants. So that's what they give them. So that's all the public gets. So that's what they think, they think the public wants. So it's like a never-ending cycle. Yeah.
But I think now that the studios basically just make movies based on already existing intellectual property, half of which is comic books. Now you're getting a lot of sort of smaller budget films and it's like, it's easier to make those. You can raise, it's easier to raise money for those. So we're going to see an influx of these diverse stories and we're already seeing that. I think it's, it's going to come from the ground up. I don't really see it, see it coming from the top down. Agreed. But just, I I mean, I've, I've said for years, like Hollywood tries to put on this like liberal mask, but it's like the most racist, sexist industry, like one of the most. Oh, if you look at like who they hire, and what they produce. I mean, it, it's all bullshit. It, it's kind of in its DNA. I just read this book about, um, God, I can't remember the name. I always get like brain farts whenever we record this, but it was like Hollywood in the 20s. And they're talking about the casting couch. Well, that hasn't changed. And that hasn't changed, exactly. So, you know. Yeah, today I learned that Alfred Hitchcock was a sexual predator. It's funny that you said that. I just watched a YouTube, well, a YouTube video about Tippi Hendren and her experience with Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, because I think uh, he got exposed in her autobiography, right? Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's that. Yeah. I don't know how to transition from that. I do. So it's interesting because we talked about Dr. Shirley's story and how people... We're thinking that maybe there was an agenda here and maybe this isn't what Dr. Shirley wanted. And so that goes down to like a biography being made where the parts of the story are either questionable or outright lies. And so that brings us to Shine. Wait, what are you implying? (laughs) Well, I guess I should introduce (laughs) the movie and then you can tell me what you're implying. Okay, cool. Shine. Shine is a 1996 film directed by Scott Hicks starring Jeffrey Rush, Armin Mueller-style Justine Brain, and it's about the life of pianist David Helfcott, driven by his father and teachers. He has a breakdown, and years later, he returns to the piano to popular, if not critical, acclaim. So yeah, what, what, what were you trying to say about Shine? Well, we can get to that later. I just want to ask you, so you saw this movie... In like 97. And then yeah. you rewatched it for the first time for this, right? I did. What did you think? Overall, I still enjoyed it. I liked it. I mean, the production value wasn't very high. It felt a little TV movie-ish. It's interesting. So Jeffrey Rush won the Oscar for Best Actor, but he's only in like half the movie. But I think Jeffrey Rush's, like what he had to do was a lot harder. His version of David, I think was a lot harder to uh, portray than the younger David. So Jeffrey Rush plays David as, I guess, um, a man in his, what, late 30s, 40s? And then Noah Taylor plays him as a teenager. And I will say, I did enjoy the movie while I was watching it. But when it was over, that was it. I didn't think about it again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I guess my, I wish Noah had gotten more recognition. Noah, right? Yeah, yeah. I wish he had gotten more recognition because he was in the majority of the movie. Yeah, I, I, I I thought... I thought he gave the better performance. I thought Jeffrey Rush's performance, like if it had gone on for longer than 30 minutes, I would have been very annoyed by it. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it, I mean, to be fair, Noah kind of showed the transition from when David was a normalish kid to when he has his breakdown. So there is that arc versus Jeffrey Rush's portrayal where he's already in that post breakdown state. So there isn't much of a change. So, yeah, I, I do wish Noah got more recognition. But uh, did you happen to, on YouTube, they have a, this little video about the 20-year reunion. Oh, no, I didn't see that. And, yeah, Dave is still alive. And he's still, he looks like he's doing great. 
and he was just like hugging Jeffrey Rush and doing like talking really fast. It was really cute to see. I feel like this this is one of those movies or this type of movie is usually doesn't have the greatest of endings. Oh yeah, you mean in real life? Bio, yeah, biopics about people with mental illness. And it was, I think one of the reasons I did like it and I still like it is that it was just refreshing because even though he is what he is, he was able to find a fulfilling life in the end. I agree. Um, but there is some controversy. His sister and brother wrote a book uh-oh. Saying <laughs> that a lot of the story was um, fabricated. Mo- everything mostly revolving around the dad was fabricated and that he really did not treat his son like that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a terrible father as he was portrayed in the movie. I think this is one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of biopics is because like, I'm, like what's the intent? Because it's inspired by actual events, but then there's a lot of liberties mm-hmm. taken. So, like, how what are we supposed to take from that? It's not really you know? a biopic, <laughs> right? Because it's like, I guess the only reason you want to have that little—is it called a chiron, or it says like based on actual events or whatever? Oh, discla- disclaimer. Yeah, I think that that's only there because the story's so crazy that no one would ever believe it. So, in order to like help us sort of suspend our disbelief in a way you got to put it up there and then it's like oh well this like no matter how crazy it gets i guess this some of this actually happened right and we can believe it but outside of that it's like i don't really know what to make of historical or biopics i mean remember francis never even had the lobotomy but like the whole thing revolves around her at the end getting the lobotomy like what so i mean i wonder about the what the production process of this was like because i mean they got approval from david and his wife now, I don't know how much consent David can give, given his state. And, you know, his wife never met the father. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky situation. Uh, but in terms of the story, even if it's not true, I did like that part of the story. Not like, like as in enjoyed watching it, but I liked the drama of it. That aspect of the father-son relationship. Yeah, I mean, if a, if a person just has a breakdown because for whatever biological, environmental, or I don't know, reasons, it's not as exciting and dramatic as if that was caused by someone very close to that person. Right. So, like, for dramatic reasons, it makes sense. Right. But then, you know, again, it's like, you know, we talk about, we talked about movies in which the story revolves around someone narrating or remembering the past. And it's like, we always have to assume that the actual events were different and this is just either an interpretation or a purposeful reimagination. So in this case, you know, the son and the daughter or the sister and the brother, uh, they wrote a book about how the dad wasn't like that. And I'm not saying that they're not telling the truth, but you know, maybe they felt bad about how their father was portrayed and their memories were different and they wrote their book. So again, like who knows what really happened? Yeah. But, you know, if I had great memories of my dad and he was this asshole on screen, I'd be upset. So I could see where they're coming from. So uh, it sounds like it's a streamer for you. Um, I mean, it's a, it is a feel-good movie, that's for sure. I mean, you get an uplifting ending. And I did have tears in my eyes at certain points. So it I, worked. <laughs> it did. It, it did its job. And I did enjoy watching it um, because of that. You know, and I always enjoy stories about artists, be it a biopic or just a, you know, fictionalized story. 
I like to see how um, artists and different media do have their process and like the psychological or mental or um, emotional toll that takes on their lives to, you know, create art. Yeah. Yeah. And I should also say this movie is significant because it basically put Jeffrey Rush on the map. Like this movie came out, he won the Academy Award and like he just started popping up and everything mm -hmm. and he's been great ever since. I've mm -hmm. always been a fan. Yeah. And I like, I like Noah Taylor and I like Armin Mueller Stahl as the father. Yeah. And I would say like, even though it's a very dramatic movie, it has like that, I don't know, there's something about like Australian movies. I don't know what it is, but I was like thinking like uh, Strictly Ballroom or Muriel's Wedding, like those are comedies and they're completely different. Yeah. But there's like something that it's got in common with them. It's the Australian film style. So I think we'll make this a double streamer. Yeah. A double streamer rating. Yeah, total streamer, definitely. Streamer with high marks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might not like hang on to it, but then yeah. again, there could be the reason that I didn't hang on to it is because it was a sentimental, uplifting film that basically gave you a happy ending and I'd spend the, the week knee deep in 70s fucking neo-noir. So <laughs> that could have just been the situation that I found myself in watching that movie after right. going through the bleakest of the bleak, you know? And you wanted to see a movie where the protagonist doesn't die at the end. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had been a minute. Yeah. Well, I think going from one historical movie to another. Let's talk about Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia is a mess. Black Dahlia is a 2006 neo-noir directed by Brian De Palma based on the book by James Elroy, starring Josh Hartnett, Scarlett Johansson, and Aaron Eckhart. And it tells the story of the still unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, AKA the Black Dahlia, and the cops charged with solving her case and all the LA intrigue that goes along with 1940s Los Angeles. We should also preface that everything in this movie is fictional except for the murder itself. Yeah. The mystery itself, it's all fictional because the murders were never solved or the murder. The murder right? was never solved. So this is just all, yeah, all fictional. Yeah. Okay, so it's got 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which it deserves. Oh man, what a turd. Yeah. So we picked this one as an example of bad noir, basically. Yeah, and you know, I, I love so many Brian De Palma movies, but I look through his filmography and I don't, nothing that he made after Mission Impossible, I thought was any good. And I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if, and I've watched the documentary, you've watched the documentary. I don't know if he like lost his mojo or he like had more creative power before that over his films but something happened and he just kind of went off the rails and it's just none of those movies are any good yeah it's being one of them and so i've always been conflicted about this one because the running time and this is about two hours but apparently the cut he delivered to the studio was three hours so there's a missing hour in this movie i don't know if that would make a difference though i'm gonna say no and i have a few reasons for that okay first of all Hilary Swank, completely miscast. A disaster casting. And I have nothing against Hilary Swank, but she, she's, she doesn't work as a sex pot. The, the weird accent she's doing just does not, does not work at all 
I don't know if it's like her fault or just her playing this part. I thought that was a terrible decision. That's reason number one. So like I don't, no amount of extra footage is going to fix that for me. Okay. Again, no problem with Hillary Swank in general. Just this role, not for her. Also, the whole thruple relationship between Aaron Eckhart, Josh Hartnett, and Scarlett Johansson, completely not interested in that. Doesn't really, I feel like this doesn't add anything to the well, story. there's no tension in that relationship at all. Well, sort of. Not really, though, because we know that he's not. He doesn't sleep with with her. Aaron Eckhart's character Lee does not have sexual relations with Scarlett's character. He doesn't. No, she even says in the movie. What? Yeah. So there's like no, there's no, there's no tension there. So, what's that? What is their relationship? He they just have it, dinner and cuddle. He saved her from that weird pimp guy who like branded or carved his name in her skin and he's got this thing where he's got to save women because save your complex save your complex because of his sister so So, oh his sister yeah it's at the end but i'll tell you this is how that doesn't make a difference though because it doesn't explain anything except for to say that his sister was murdered when she was 15 and that's why he's so driven to solve the black dahlia face because it case because it reminds him of his sister i don't know i mean we don't know really anything about what motivates him at all so why won't josh hartnett fuck her if they're not in a romantic relationship because of loyalty to lee i don't know josh hartnett's character's name is bucky i don't know this it it, there's nothing there's we're getting nothing from any of these characters yeah also fiona shaw's performance also great actress terrible performance so over the top so melodramatic Mm -hmm. I mean, what else did I not like about this movie? It was so visually, it like it was way too slick. All my favorite De Palma movies are gritty, and like this had that weird s- s- sepia tone, mm-hmm. which I guess is supposed to give it that grit. No, it was, it's no grit no. on it. Nothing. It was awful. Nothing. And let yeah, me that's tell your worst you, nightmare. Too clean. It was too clean. And let me tell you. I just spent like six hours watching the grittiest stuff you've ever seen. And then I watched this after, like I'd watched three movies in a row um, from the seventies. And then I watched this and you can, the contrast between those movies on so many levels. And this movie, one was the grittiness. There is like a raw, true grit to those films from the seventies. This one was slick, 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 too clean. It was like fake gritty. And you know what it reminded me of? In a, not like in a comparison way, but that boosted my respect for felt farewell, my lovely. Um, because that's also like a crime noir set in LA. That movie was had gritty scenes to it. It had some dirty spots. Like you got that they were in the grimy, seedy side of LA. And there was no contrast in Black Dahlia from the glamour, glamorous mansions. And then to you go to these like flop houses and um, roadside motels. It was all like the same. Yeah, you know what? I wonder if part of the the problem with this movie and just De Palma in the late 90s and 2000s is that he was forced to switch from film to digital and that changed the look because this was probably shot in digital, right? Uh, I thought this was, this looked like film. Did it? I'm going to look, we'll... look it up really fast. Mm, nope. Mm-mm, it wasn't, it was film. All right, well, maybe because... I was watching it on an 
alternate screening site. So <laughs> the quality disguised the look of it. But yeah, it was, it was just like too slick. Yeah, it's, and, um, it's too shiny. I felt like everyone was playing, playing characters. Like they weren't inhabiting their characters. Like I'm supposed to be the cop. I'm supposed to be the femme fatale. I'm supposed to be this guy. But they weren't really being those people. Yeah. And speaking of inhabiting characters, if you watch enough De Palma movies, you know that he loves to do this first person point of view shot. And in his best movies, it's great because it builds tension because it like puts you in the point of view of this character who you know is probably about to get murdered. So you're like experiencing that tension, that fear. Here, again, I don't know what the extra footage had. Here, it just this weird scene where Bucky shows up to dinner and he walks to the house and he sits down at the dinner table. It's all first person and yeah, I just adds nothing. It was just very confusing. Like, why is this here? Yeah, and what amazed me, and I've seen this movie a couple of times recently, randomly, was that they even managed to make the murder case lame. This is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in American history, like as far as sensationalism, and it's like effect on pop culture. I wasn't even intrigued by the murder, which I should have been. Even if the murder was a gateway to like a bigger story, nope, didn't care. Yeah, I was spinning too many plates because you had the murder, there was something about this bank robbery that I was confused about that was revealed at the end. Uh, There's like the weird like lesbian subplots. Uh, and actually where he, when he goes to the lesbian club, I thought that was kind of cool because it's like a lesbian club in the, in the 40s, mm-hmm. which I don't know if I'd ever seen before. And Katie, Katie Lang was playing mm-hmm. on stage. I'm like, hey, I remember Katie Lang. So I guess I did like that part. But it's just like all these like plates were spinning, the fact that they were boxers, like, oh, they had to fight each other. I don't know. I, so now I wonder about the book. Oh, I've read the book. So you like this book as well? I do. This book is the first book in the series that includes LA Confidential. There's a four book, uh, four book series called the LA Quartet. And this is the first book. Uh, and some of the events from this book and the second book bleed into LA Confidential and the book. It doesn't feature the same cops or no. uh, prosecutors or any of that? Some of the prosecutors and some of the other people that appear in the later books are like minor characters in this book. So what did this movie miss when it came to putting the book on screen? The problem with James Elroy is that he writes these labertine, is that the way you say it? Like I don't know very large scale interconnected plots that have lots of plate spinning but it's a book so he's able to like bring them all together Mm -hmm. and I think that this movie tried to take too many elements from that that book and get them on the screen whereas in Elliot Confidential they basically took out everything outside the Night Owl Massacre There was like a heist in there somewhere and then the corruption in the city and the prostitutes that look like movie stars. But the other 1170 plot points, they just got rid of that. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen LA Confidential, but I don't recall it having so many subplots. Mm -hmm. They like deleted about 90 subplots from the book, (laughs) which I think it's a film. You can't do everything. If you want to do everything, make it a miniseries. Also, some filmmakers are better than others at doing everything because I think Jackie Brown, also based on an Elroy novel, 
which is, by the way, my favorite Tarantino movie, works great. And it's got a lot of different subplots because Tarantino knows how to do that. Yeah, true. True. And I think with Brian De Palma, he's great at intrigue, but like very centralized intrigue. It doesn't have too many characters. Yeah. And I think also we have to believe in the setting where these stories take place. And I didn't believe in it. Look, man, we all know 1940s LAPD is corrupt as hell. I'm not, we didn't get any of that. And that's also a major thing in these Elroy books is the like just the nature of governmental corruption. It's sort of skimmed over, but you know, if we want to add to the the true feel of like noir and grit, you got to get some dirty cops because the there's lots of dirty cops in the LAPD in 1947. Yeah, that's the one subplot they decided to skip. Right. But maybe that's part of the footage that he shot and never made it to the film. That's true. That is true. We don't know. But based on all the subplots, including this, again, I don't think additional footage would have helped. Yeah. So it's a hard skip. It's a, it's a uh, love-hate relationship I have with this because I love the book so much that I wanted this to be good and it's not i bet someone will make it again because alroy he's there's been so many movies based on his works he's he's beloved in the genre i think you're you're mistaking you're mixing up james elroy elroy with elmore leonard i am you are yeah because i was like no he's only had la confidential as like his only major movie i'm completely yeah so jackie brown isn't no that's elmore leonard oh my god I'm an idiot. Ignore everything I've been saying. But people are still intrigued by the Black Dahlia murder, especially with all these murder podcasts. So I bet it's going to be remade at some point. I hope so. I hope they do it right. I know there was talk of doing the entire... No, no, no. Never mind. He has it's a... HBO miniseries? Yeah, but not. it's not this series. He has another uh, trilogy um, called Underworld USA. And I know that they were in talks to do that, but that's been in talks for like 15 years. That's never going to happen. I don't think. So Elroy only wrote those four books and that's it. Oh no. Uh-uh. He's got tons of books. Is justified the TV show justified based on Elroy or the other guy? The other guy. No, Elroy has a lot of books and he has lots of, he has a couple of memoirs too, because his mother was murdered when he was, I think 11 or so. And oh, how that, how that like really traumatized him and sort of the way he processed that trauma was becoming obsessed with dead women like the Black Dahlia. Right. So he was the original murderino. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, one thing, one thing I did like about this movie and I, I bet he's, he features in more of the, the cut footage was the appearance of Greg Henry. Do you know what I'm talking about? The actor's name is Greg Henry. He played, I guess, the bookie in the beginning that Bucky like talks to in the park, and then he's at the boxing match. Oh, okay. Because he he's also in Body Body Double, and uh, which is another De Palma movie uh, that I love. And then he's also in a non De Palma movie that I would call neo noir from the '90s called Payback with Mel Gibson. I've seen that. Yeah. Interesting little fact about Payback. I love that movie. I bought the director's cut on DVD and the director's cut is significantly worse, but it has a featurette where um, the writer talked about how basically like Mel Gibson meddled 
with this movie to to create what we see as a theatrical release, which is great. And I think it shows what a great filmmaker Mel Gibson is because the director's cut, I think, is a lot worse. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a little tangent there for you. So yeah, hard skip for me. And I hate to say that because I do, but it's true. Hard skip. Well, ho- hopefully Elroy made a bunch of money off selling the rights to this. Hope so. Got something out of it. I'm just looking at a list of his movies. I haven't, there's something from 88 called Cop, which I've never seen. I've never seen that either. Dark Blue from 2002 I liked. Street Kings with Keanu Reeves. Did I see that? I think I did. I think that was okay. And then also Rampart, that disaster that was based on his. Remember that movie? With Woody Harrelson where he plays a really bad cop. Apparently it was like a huge disaster. Oh, I feel like no one, I feel like Elroy may be unfilmable. No, I like Confidential. Who made that? Curtis Hansen. Yeah. And uh, Dark Blue, who made that? Ron Shelton. But Curtis Hansen, I think he's had what practice with that genre. Remember Silent Partner? He wrote that. Oh, shit. So, like, he's been dipping his foot into, like, crime, crime yeah. dramas. And so, you know, and that, that's, a good, that's a good story. He was the capable hands that that book found itself in. But it seems that they're few and far between. And again, we don't know what constraints De Palma was on. Yeah, that's true Under too. when he was making this. Because I think, in a way, it's a lot harder to use existing material to make a movie. Because it's almost like you have to, in a way, rewrite it to be a movie. You can't just like copy like everything that happens in the book and the source material and put it on the screen, which I think is like what ended up happening with Peter Jackson and like the Hobbit movies and the fact that they're all eight hours long because he like wanted to put every single thing in, but like what works in a book doesn't work in a movie. We don't need to see everything. Right. So you have to get an ex- someone who is an expert at adapting. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so let's pick, let's pick some, some great movies for next time. Okay. So for next time, maybe we should hold off on deciding because I have some movies that I came up with while I was researching neo-noir in the 70s that I'd never seen. And you want to maybe check them out? Maybe, maybe. So uh, stay tuned for our next movies. Join us next week when we discuss two movies. We haven't decided what they're going to be yet. But in the meantime, don't lose your shine. <laughs>